ninja. But today, too many people in positions of power behave as though they have more in common with international elites than with the people down the road, the people they employ, the people they pass on the street. But if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. You don't understand what the very word citizenship means. Okay, hi everyone. So welcome to Geography Ninja. And today we're going to talk about Brexit again. Yeah, banging on about Brexit again. This is actually a part two. Uh, I did part one uh, a week or so ago. Part one really dealt with the uh, some of the demographics of Brexit, some of the results and possible implications of it, just really looking at the data. This one, uh, this is Brexit Part 2, Geography of Brexit Part 2, um, subtitled The Citizens of Nowhere. And what you were just listening to there was a speech given by former British Prime Minister Theresa May back in October of 2016. So this is a few months after the EU referendum uh, which has become widely known ever since as the Citizens of Nowhere speech. So this really got me thinking, you know, what does it mean? What are Citizens of Nowhere? And it's got a bit of a geographical ring to it, um, although it is is pretty vague overall. Um, <clears throat> I like to consider myself a citizen of the world. So what, what does that mean? Um, am I a citizen of, of nowhere? And when I started unpacking this a little bit, I thought, well, there are, there are several different elements that, you, that you know, geographers uh, might be, uh, be interested in, in how you could analyse um, this concept of citizens of nowhere. I mean, clearly in that extract of the speech, there was, um, it was directed towards sort of big businesses, uh, CEOs and so on, not, not paying tax um, in the, the country that they're based in. Um, maybe rings a little bit hollow uh, coming from a, a conservative prime minister. But <clears throat> there's, there's maybe, I think there's possibly four different elements that w we could analyse for citizens of nowhere. So the first one is it's, it's the um, populism. Um, idea setting um, up the ordinary people as opposed to to some sort of metropolitan elite, very much an us and them mentality. You're either with us or you're you know you're either for us or you're you're against us. Maybe it's a bit of a false dichotomy because not everyone is is going to be so uh, in one camp or the other in that way, but. The, the speech seems to suggest you can't be both. So so there's, there's definitely a big element of populism there. Um, the second one is, I think it raises lots and lots of questions about British identity um, in the 21st century. You know, who are we? Are we lost? You know, are we, are we British? Are we English, Welsh, Scottish, Northern Irish? What, what are we exactly? There's been a lot of comment flying around recently over how disunited the United Kingdom is, how how much longer the United Kingdom will function as, as a union. Um, lots of questions about Scottish nationality, Scottish nationalism. Um, you know, will there be another Scottish independence referendum? The last one was in 2014. Could there be another one? So British identity is really under the microscope at the moment. Um, the third one, I think, is the is the migration issue. You know, if we're thinking about citizens of nowhere, 
Um, what about all those people who have been displaced from from their country of origin by wars and um, civil unrest and human rights abuses and so on? The migration issue was a huge element to the whole Brexit debate, EU referendum. There was the, the notorious UKIP poster with Nigel Farage standing in front of this long snaking line of uh, refugees, <clears throat> which known as the, the Breaking Point poster. <clears throat> so I, I think Citizens of Nowhere could also maybe apply to that the whole migration debate surrounded, uh, surrounding Brexit. And I, I think the final part is, um, I, I'm talking to you here from 14th of August 2019, when I'm recording this, and today in the news, Boris Johnson, the current UK Prime Minister has been quite heavily criticised across um, cross-party criticism of Boris Johnson for comments that he's made. He, he suggested that there's, well, he actually said there's a terrible collaboration, as it were, going on between people that people who think they can block Brexit in Parliament and our European friends. So I think the this element is is also really about. Um, populism but it's also about the 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 geographical language that people in positions of power use using a term like collaboration um in my mind brings up images of um wartime collaboration uh, people collaborating with an enemy power um with the UK is not at war with the European Union um Apart from anything else, it's um, it 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 drives it, it creates more divides between people. So I think those those are the elements that I'd like to to touch on in in this podcast. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to start off then, just going back to that idea of the the original speech from Theresa May and the the theme of populism here and. For my reference, I've um, I've gone to the the Guardian newspaper, and there was there was a letter from October, twenty sixteen, and this this is what it what it said. So there's there's a there's there's another speech here. Um, the globalized class live almost exclusively in big cities, speak fluent English, and when they move from Berlin to London or Singapore for jobs, they find similar flats, houses restaurants, shops and private schools. Now that was a quote from um, the uh, leader of the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, um, the the far-right German party um, from Alexander Gauland, and this was in 2018. So the, the, the type of language and themes brought up very, very similar to what was in Theresa May's um, speech, um, really, again, emphasising that, you know, you're, you're either, you, you belong to this country or, you know, you're, you're, you're somehow some elite class that, um, that, that doesn't really fit in. It's, it's sort of more, more comfortable in you know, a big city wherever it might be in the world rather than in, in one particular country. Um, and um, just listen to this other speech. 
uh, the clique, people who are at home, uh, both nowhere and everywhere, who do not have anywhere um, a soil on which they have grown up, but who live in Berlin today, in Brussels tomorrow, Paris the day after that, and then again in Prague or Vienna or London, and who feel at home everywhere. Now, believe it or not, that speech dates from 1933 and was given by Adolf Hitler. So, you know, lots of very uncomfortable parallels in the type of language and the types of images of um, identity and belonging and citizenship and whether you, you fit in to, to the country in question or not. Um, you know, really, really clear parallels there between those, those three speeches. Um, in fact, in, in July 2017, Vince Cable of the Liberal Democrats actually commented on this speech of Theresa May and came out with a comment of his own. He said it could have been taken out of Mein Kampf. So slightly worrying, I would say. But I think the other point really to make here is that there's some sort of denial going on really about how the global economy works. Um, we're, we're all really products of, of globalisation now. And just thinking about the position of the United Kingdom in 2016, when we had the EU um, referendum, um, the, the UK was the, was, came second after the USA in terms of foreign direct investment. That's, that's an inflow of capital, money, coming in to the United Kingdom from overseas um, to invest in the United Kingdom. Um, in 2016, it, it, totaled, it was over £253 billion of investment coming in to the UK. Um, so, so really, for Theresa May to, to start saying that, you know, international um, companies, corporations and so on are, are, um, are, are part of the problem here is a little bit disingenuous. Geography Ninja. <laughs> I mean, if for nothing else, after Brexit, if Brexit does happen and the UK leaves the EU, we still want this money, don't we? We still want this foreign direct investment. We still want this uh, inflow of money into the UK from these citizens of, citizens of nowhere. So let's not, you know, annoy them. Let's not send them, send them away. We, we're we're going to be even more dependent on them in the future than we are currently. All right. Well, the, the second point was really about British identity and, you know, are, are the British themselves, are we just all becoming citizens of nowhere? Um, and I'm just going to read something from the, um, the government's, uh, the yougov.co.uk website. And this is, is really about um, national identity, what it, what it means um, in Britain. Now, actually, before I read it, I'm just going to say that my I've got some... Canadian relatives, my, my in-laws are Canadian, and I remember one conversation I had um, several, well, a number of years ago, one of the first times I, I visited them in Canada, and having to, to try and explain what, how England and Great Britain and the UK, they're, they're not all mutually 
um, exclusive places, how, you know, you, you don't call someone in Scotland English, how the British Isles um, incorporates the Republic of Ireland as well, but that's not in the United Kingdom. You know, what is Great Britain? Where does the Isle of Man fit in? What about Guernsey and Jersey, Channel Islands and so on? It's actually a very com complex uh, union um, the the United Kingdom, but I think in in recent years there has been some resurgence of more regional identities or, or um, national identities other than just British. So the the YouGov website, what it's um, what it says is how sometimes English national identity can can often be seen as the same as British identity, particularly from pe from people from outside um, the UK. But it, it goes on to say, you know, England has got no national parliament, no national anthem, um, and so on. So um, one thing that has changed in recent years is that the, there is a shift and the the uh, the shift seems to be from people associating with Britishness to Englishness. So the the figures on the YouGov website suggests that um, 38%, um, the largest proportion of English people, consider them to be e consider themselves to be equally English and um, British. And then you've got um, about. 35% who regard themselves to be more English um, and 19% uh, who said they were English and not British. Um, so, the, you know, there's, there's lots of different views on, on this and there, there does seem to be no sort of overriding um, acceptance of what it is to be, to be British. Um, there is some research that has been done to suggest that... Um, Elderly people are far more off, more likely to put down English as their nationality on official forms than than British. So it does really question, you know, well, how how important do people see um, Britishness as a national identity and concept? How how important do they feel it is? Does that mean that we're all becoming? citizens of nowhere or are we reasserting this uh, English national identity or in Scotland the Scottish national identity in Wales you know there's been an increase in support for Plaid Cymru the um, the Welsh uh, national political party so but surely the integrity of the United Kingdom is you know has always been regarded by by all politicians or, or mainstream politicians as something absolute and and a red line that would not be crossed. But um, <clears throat> in a recent article in um, in July twenty nineteen in Business Insider, the whole concept of the 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 breakup of the UK. Um, you know, it was it was it formed a a headline there. So, um, and it was the idea that conservatives are becoming comfortable with the breakup of the UK. So, what what does that mean? Does that mean that we all end up being citizens of of nowhere? We have to re-establish our national identities 
if if that happens. Um, the Theresa May's cabinet um, apparently discussed um, a document which looked at the real risks of Scotland, Wales or of Northern Ireland leaving um, the Union, uh, United Kingdom. Um, it maybe comes across as slightly ironic, given that the uh, the Conservatives, Conservative Party, are officially known as the Conservative and Unionist Party. So keeping the United Kingdom um, together it should really be a key aim of the the Conservatives. But um, uh, you know, within all this, there are as always more extreme views out there as well, and. Lots of hard Brexiters or Brexiteers, as as they're often known. Um, the Business Insider article suggests that many of them are becoming comfortable with the idea that they might need to uh, destroy Britain to secure its independence from the European Union. And recently, when Nigel Farage was asked whether the loss of Scotland was a price worth paying, um, he said that it would be deeply regrettable, but Brexit was the priority. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how that all, how that all sits together, really. There's, there's a concept I came across in New Statesman back in 2015, which they call the Overton Window. And the Overton Window is, is the range of policies that voters will find acceptable which are usually things that are, uh, are going to be very mainstream, non-contentious type of policies, generally. Um, but it does make me wonder whether, you know, if the, the many people are actively discussing um, the idea of the, the UK breaking up into its constituent parts, whether, you know, what percentage of voters might find that um, to be acceptable. So here's a bit more data for you. This is from June of 2019. This is from a YouGov survey of Conservative Party members. And what that survey found out was that 54% um, um, uh, of Tory members were willing to see the destruction of their own party, if that was necessary to get Brexit through. Um, only a third of them, about 36%, put the preservation of the Conservative Party above getting Britain out of the European Union. And the the other one was um, maybe even more, more shocking. So when they were asked whether they'd rather avoid Brexit um, if it would lead to Scotland or Northern Ireland breaking away from the UK, um, 63% said they'd be, be willing to see Scotland leave the UK. 59% said they'd be willing to see Northern Ireland leave the UK um, as a price uh, worth paying for for Brexit. Um, 61% said they'd be, they'd be, they would accept that there's going to be significant economic damage to the British economy in order to leave the European Union. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but one of the, the things I'm having trouble getting through in my head is the one of the reasons for, for Brexit in the first place was about the about the sovereignty, sovereignty issue and the sovereignty of Parliament, um, how uh, Britain wants to make its own 
laws without interference from uh, the European Union and Brussels, um, but you know, seriously being considered uh, by the government is the idea of proroguing Parliament, so in other words, closing down the House of Commons in order to get Brexit done and through, whether that is, is with no deal, by the 31st of October. So I think this sort of brings us on to the to the final point for this podcast, which um, <clears throat> is based also on, on language. You know, we started off thinking about the language used in the Citizens of Nowhere speech back in October 2016. Well, in um, August of 2019, Boris Johnson, UK Prime Minister, uh, made this comment. He said, there is a terrible kind of collaboration, as it were, going on between those who think they can block Brexit in Parliament and our European friends. Um, Now, just that word, collaborator, it brings forward... um, visions of people who cooperated with the Nazis, Nazi Germany, in World War Two, And uh, again, it, it could be read, just as the citizens of nowhere, it could be read as, as populist rhetoric, really. It's in the same vein as uh, some of the tabloid headlines back at the end of 2016. Um, so, for example, the, the Daily Mail on the 4th of November 2016 um, labelling uh, high court judges as enemies of the people, part of the, the judiciary. Um, and really the, the message here is, you know, if you don't, if you don't like what uh, my ideological position is, then you're, you're a traitor. You know, you're betraying or you're undermining the will of the people. And, you know, remember that the, the referendum vote, although Leave did win, um, it was a 52-48 split, um, so they won, but it wasn't by a by a huge margin. So there's still almost fifty percent of people who uh, would would rather remain than leave. That number may have changed over the last three years, um, but it's it is a quite a tenuous position really to argue that it is the will of the people um when there were nearly 50% of people that voted against it and the use of that language um using collaborators i mean boris johnson has been referred to as uh britain's answer to donald trump so you know are all of those opposed to a no deal brexit terrible collaborators and citizens of nowhere um in other words you know not fully belonging to britain not not pulling in the same direction as uh, the will of the people. Um, you know, there is a lot of, lot of stuff you can, can read into this. And it, it is also really about division. It's about creating further uh, division uh, within the country. Now, one of the things that, that has worried me with all of this, you know, I'm trying to keep as objective as I, as I can with it. But one of the things is, this is all in the backdrop of what happened in 2016 when a British MP was murdered. So we had the, the murder of the Labour MP, Joe Cox, um, by someone who was linked to uh, far-right groups. He was an activist with, with links to various far-right groups. Um, as he was committing the uh, the murder um you know there were comments 
that were used as evidence where you know Britain first and keep Britain independent um, were were used. So for the prime minister to label uh, people as collaborators with, in inverted commas, an enemy, um, you know, it, it maybe is is worrying for um, for politicians who find themselves on the wrong side of that divide. Okay, so just to finish off then, and to conclude things, really, I think, you know, one of the things is really that national boundaries are less important now to to many people, because uh, we live in an increasingly globalised world. And it's, it's globalisation is, is impossible to, to stop. It's maybe akin to trying to order the, the, the tide to stop coming in and out. Um, using language of what could be termed geographical exclusivity and nationalism is dangerous in the best of times and these aren't the best of times um you know setting people up an us and them divide does set a dangerous precedent that's been seen before uh, with not very good uh, consequences citizens of nowhere um as used as a derogatory term, does show a little bit of hypocrisy, I would say, and some denial over how the world works in the 21st century. What about all those people who've got dual nationality or who uh, maybe migrate for whatever reason, economic migrants, forced migrants, whatever it might be, and all of those uh, many people with family links in more than one country um, are they all citizens of nowhere? You know, people are have very different um, uh, links internationally uh, in, in the present day. Uh, it's a fact of life for, for many people. So I think really my view with all of this is at the moment, people in positions of power should be trying to heal divisions rather than, than increase them. Okay, so anyway, I'm going to finish off there. Probably talk for far, far too long. Hopefully that has been thought-provoking. I think this is probably the last one I'm going to do on Brexit for a while. I've got lots of other Geography Ninja uh, things coming at you very, very soon. So anyway, thanks for listening and um, see you again soon. Bye.